Support for Decoder comes from NetSuite. Here are some numbers all business owners should know for 2024. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com decoder. That's netsuite.com decoder to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com decoder. Support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Volkswagen Group CEO, Dr. Herbert Dies. Now, Volkswagen Group is a huge company. If you're in the United States, you might not know it because Volkswagen has smaller market share here, but Volkswagen is one of the two biggest car makers in the world. There's a battle every year between VW and Toyota for the top spot. They both sell around 10 million cars a year. To put that in perspective, Ford sells around four to six million cars a year. And in 2021, Tesla sold just over 900,000 cars. So yeah, Volkswagen Group is big. It's also complicated. Herbert oversees a huge range of familiar car brands. There's VW, of course, but also Audi, Lamborghini, Porsche, Bentley. There's Skoda and Seat in Europe. They own the Ducati Motorcycle Company. A recent management shuffle also put him directly in charge of Volkswagen's software subsidiary, which is called Cariad. And of course, he's in charge of VW's aggressive efforts to electrify its lineup and shift all of its cars to being EVs. And you can't talk about that process without talking about a scandal. From 2009 to 2015, Volkswagen sold cars with diesel engines that were programmed to circumvent emissions tests. The cars would know when they were stationary and being tested and reduce emissions to pass the tests. But moving around under normal driving conditions, they emitted 40 times more nitrogen oxide than was allowed. The scandal was known as Dieselgate. All sorts of countries opened investigations and issued fines. Here in the United States, Volkswagen is ordered to pay $2.7 billion in environmental fees and importantly, invest another $2 billion into clean emissions infrastructure. That $2 billion investment turned into an EV charging network called Electrify America, which now has just over 700 charging stations across the country, with plans to expand to 1,800 stations and 10,000 chargers by the end of 2025. For comparison, Tesla already has just over 900 stations and over 10,000 chargers. If you don't have a Tesla, though, chances are you're going to end up at an Electrify America charging station at some point or another. If VW can get it right, it can spin the consequences of Dieselgate into a pretty significant competitive advantage as the country transitions to EVs. But it's got to get it right. And it certainly can't think of running Electrify America as a punishment. Herbert and I talked about all of that and the overall transition to EVs 
including VW's new EV microbus, which is very cool. We also talked about how a company like Volkswagen can move as quickly as its smaller competitors, whether or not Volkswagen will let other companies buy or license the software it's developing for its own cars, how he's thinking about self-driving cars, and just a ton more. If you'll listen, you'll notice that there's a real theme here. It's a vertical integration. Herbert thinks that in order for Volkswagen Group to move fast and invent the future, it has to do a lot of things itself instead of depending on suppliers. It comes up over and over again. Okay, Herbert Dies, the CEO of Volkswagen Group. Here we go. Herbert Dies, you're the CEO of Volkswagen Group. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you. I'm uh, excited to be first time with you, Nilay. Thank you for the opportunity and look forward to your questions. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, VW just announced the microbus is coming back as an EV. I saw some photos coming out of CS. They look very exciting. That's a, obviously a legendary car. I think people are excited about it. But then VW itself has just restructured a bit. You just took over leadership of the software group called Cariad, which is fascinating. So I actually want to start there with the basics. VW is a massive, major car company, lots of businesses, lots of markets that you serve. It's an old company. It's been around for a long time. How is VW structured? First of all, we are kind of a conglomerate of brands. Volkswagen is from uh, Skoda, Seat, uh, Volkswagen as a worldwide brand in the volume manufacturing segment. But then we have also premium, Audi first and foremost, but also Bentley, Lamborghini are belonging to Volkswagen. And I would say top of the range, uh, most sporty cars, Porsches belong to the brand. Then we have trucks. Scania, MIN, so totally different business, but also about mobility, it's about transport. And then we have a couple of service entities. We just uh, in the process of acquiring a, a car rental company, a car sharing. So it's, uh, as you said, it's uh, quite big, it's complex, but I think it's good setup for being successful in the future. We have scale, we have technology, we have exciting brands. So how are we going to run the uh, group? We have quite independent groups of brands. So it's volume is uh, led by Volkswagen. Uh, premium, all premium brands are led by Audi. And Porsche is basically on its own. And <laughs> towards the, the customer side, they are very, very independent. But we share technology. We share platforms. We share hardware platform. We share software platform. We share mobility services, we share finance, and that is how we uh, capitalize on the economies of scale. Yeah. I feel like I hear a lot from car CEOs on the show, the same idea, which is we have a house of brands. We want all the brands to be differentiated and operate in whatever segments, whether it's volume or premium or sports cars. You also own Lamborghini. I could just talk to you about Lamborghini for an hour, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to get economy of scale from centralizing platforms, software, all of that stuff, right? We're going to have just a few basic platforms, and those platforms mm -hmm. are going to be expressed by our brands in various ways. I, that idea sounds great. The execution of that idea is obviously very hard. So if Volkswagen has a different need for the platform underlying the ID4 than Audi, how do you make that decision? First of all, I'm... 
might say that we have been quite successful in, in <laughs> platforms, no? Because uh, our platforms are really widely used and uh, excluding Porsche, uh, any other brand, uh, all volume brands, Audi included, uh, then are using MQB platform, which is a quite versatile platform we are using from India, Latin America, China, Europe. Uh, and that has advantages because we can really offer best platform technology at really best price. And this is why we are today with the goal, for instance, we are basically winning every every test comparison and we share this platform with Audi. So it works. We have quite good experience. With maybe even how we get to the next stage. The world is changing. We are going to an electric automotive world. Nowhere you would have less differentiation when it comes to engines. You still will have differentiation performance-wise. No, you will have a rear-wheel drive, front-wheel drive, all-wheel drive. You will have different sizes of batteries. But when it comes then to the converters for the electric units or so, you get to much more similarity than we have today in the industry. And this is why we think hardware differentiation will be probably less in the future. Because what we also see from the competition, we all share kind of a chocolate size battery. No, this is bottom floor, bottom battery. Uh, allowing for a huge range of the cars. This is a common. You have rear wheel uh, electric drives, front wheel electric drives, very similar in its design. We have a certain differentiation currently between 800 volt and 400 volt technology. We have both, no? Porsche and Audi are running on 800 volt, Volkswagen and the volume brands on 400 volt. But even we will see, we see a conversion there. And that is why we decided that in the future, in an entirely electric world, one platform will do it. And, and this will be a differentiated platform, not from 85 kilowatts probably to 800 or 2000 kilowatts at the, at the top of the range. But there are a lot of similarities which we can leverage in scale. Even more so on the software side. Now today, if you would drive an Audi or Porsche and a Volkswagen, you would have probably different hardware and software for navigation, for climate control, for even the window lifter no, would have mm -hmm. different software. That's not necessary. Uh, and also this uh, trend that software gets separated from the hardware that we get from embedded software, which comes with the computers we buy to let's say an own software stack, then also software offers a huge opportunity for economies of scale, still allowing for brand differentiation. No, a Porsche can remain a Porsche, even better probably than today. An Audi can remain an Audi and Volkswagen will uh, offer a broad range of, of products, but the basic software stack can be very, very similar. And as software is relatively expensive in automotive, no, it's a one-time uh, um, expenditure is high, we think that we have a good chance also to become very competitive in software if we do the basic software uh, in common for all the brands. And this is exactly why we founded Carriot to get from a world where we bought in software with the embedded systems to an own software stack, which will supply the basic software stack to all of our brands. And then the brands have all the tools and all the freedom to differentiate for sportiness, for comfort, for uh, different use cases. And this is why we, we think we are, we are well set up for this uh, new world where economies of scale will probably play a bigger role 
than in this old uh, outer world. And differentiation will be probably more difficult, but through software it will be very, very possible. We are sharing uh, currently uh, in, in the upper end 800 volt platform between Audi and Porsche and the cars, you know, the, the Taycan and the Audi GT are so different in, in, the, in the perception, in the range, also in the segments they are running that I think the new world will allow for a lot of differentiation, but will even allow for more economies of scales. I want to talk about that in depth, but I just want to ask two more of what I think of as the decoder questions. You run a huge company, lots of different kinds of decisions to make, especially as you transition. How do you make decisions? What is your decision-making framework? My life experience tells me that the best knowledge normally is in the room. Yeah? I'm always looking for different opinions, for a variety of, of insights, for discussion to get to the right decision. I think those sole decisions from the stomach, yeah, and I've, I've experienced some of those, <laughs> are often wrong, are often wrong. So I believe in good team decisions, in fighting for different positions, for different, uh, uh, have a, uh, uh, let's say, a competition for the best ideas, that really works. And normally you have the competence in the team role. You know, I, I interview primarily U.S.-based CEOs in America that CEOs, especially founder CEOs, are given an enormous amount of executive authority. They tend to run the companies. Maybe they make a lot of those gut decisions. VW is a European company, right? It has a big mm. supervisory board. The unions have a lot of seats on that board. Just explain how that works and whether you think it constrains your ability to make change as a CEO. Because just for our audience... That is very different than any sort of American company that we're usually familiar with. It is, but it, it can work. Uh, it is, but <laughs> I, I think it's you know it is complex. No, and you need more alignment, a lo lot of discussion, and it's it's not allowing, uh, let's say, uh, very random decisions or so. No, you have to you have to defend your case. But I think as is a shared interest in the future of the company. Now, and also in, let's say, an ideal world where you have to talk to your finance audience or so, you have to convince people if you want to run business. No, it's not that you can decide everything out of the guts because, you know, you, you can make a few decisions, but then you have to prove. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, so I think in any business model, you have to explain your story, you have to explain why, you have to take the people with you. It's probably more complex in the Volkswagen world, no? where the ownership is quite special, I would call it. Uh, also, we, let's say the, the, it's, it's quite heterogeneous because of several brands. Uh, Porsche is totally different to Skoda, yeah? uh, trucks, uh, Scania is totally different to cars. So it's, it's a complex task, but it's working. And I would say we can demonstrate because we, are, we think we are quite fast in the transition. No? We have taken the decision to go for an electric, only electric platform five years ago. No? Some of our peers are coming to that conclusion now, basically. I think we are continuously investing. We have strong cash flows from our existing business. We are continuously investing. We have invested several billion in software now. Uh, we have acquired a, a car rental company or are in the process just recently. So we are in, in, investing heavily in the transition, more than probably others. That means that we came to that conclusion and we could convince our stakeholders quite early. So it's not necessarily that 
we get slow, but we have to admit that those founder companies, they bring different speed to the game. Yeah? They, it's, a, it's a new challenge for us, and we have to rethink our processes, rethink our organization, and we have to improve a lot to remain competitive. Yeah. yeah. There's one specific founder CEO car company that I might be thinking of. Uh, it's Tesla, obviously. And Tesla's great advantage is very tight integration of hardware and software. Mm. Even through the chip shortage, uh, I definitely want to ask you about, right? They were able to swap out chips and rewrite the software based on what chips were available in a way that virtually no other car company was able to do. No, no, that's not true. We do we do that also continuously, but you have to you have to Imagine now we are much more complex. Now we have a yeah. variety of, of supply chains, which makes us, uh, and even the platform strategy makes us a little bit more vulnerable. But we also, we already did some redesigns. Probably we are still a bit too slow. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> we need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the importance of software to Volkswagen's future. Support for Decoder comes from Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Whether you're seeking a location for your podcast, teaching language courses, or selling handcrafted ceramics, Squarespace has all the tools you need to create a home on the web. You can create a polished, professional place that connects people with whatever it is you're excited about. Squarespace also supports all forms of connecting with those people, whether you're selling products online or in person, or offering memberships. You can make your website look exactly how you want it. They even have the tools to help you create a custom logo. And they make it easy to create a place for people to schedule an appointment with you, browse your services, or learn more about why you do what you do. Visit squarespace.com decoder for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code DECODER to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be a challenge for men to speak up about their health, and oftentimes that's rooted in the fear of being vulnerable. But there are just some things we'd rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they are looking to provide you with the help you need discreetly. Introducing Hims, a men's healthcare product looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash verge for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back. You recently took over the software division, uh, Carried, and I buy what you're saying about the future of cars. Right, we're basically going to have skateboard platforms, the battery and motors in various configurations, and they'll go up and down in size and performance. And then on top of that, you can layer industrial design, and then you can layer user experience. And the user experience and how all these things talk to each other is not a hardware problem; it's a software problem. Mm. I've heard this. 
from enough people <laughs> to believe that this is where the yeah. industry is going. But that software problem is very challenging, right? And it, in many ways, you could say that is actually the car engineering problem now. How do we own all of the components such they talk to each other? How do we integrate them? How do we build a compelling user experience? How do we deliver software updates? Right, You turn the car into a computer, you inherit computer problems. Why is Carriott a division of Volkswagen instead of Volkswagen, if that is the future? Yeah, it depends how, how you, you call it. I would say it is Volkswagen. If you say, no, I think you're, you're absolutely right in your, in your verdict. Uh, the differentiation, the competitiveness, also the customer experience uh, will depend 90% on software. No, still, I, I'm convinced that design will play a role, performance will play a role, brand image uh, marketing will play a role, but software is becoming really dominant in the integration. But that was always the case. I think, you know, all, also those successful brands always um, could demonstrate that the integrity of a product is excellent. No, a typical Volkswagen had to be a typical Volkswagen, then, it, uh, then this car was, was a success. And the same applies to BMW, Mercedes. So product integrity in a huge, uh, uh, in a complex open room of solutions always has been a core task. What's really new is that so decisive to be able to integrate software no, in the in the different properties and this is a, a very difficult task but it's also something not so easy to copy because it's so complex a car today already is 10 times more complex than a smartphone no? it, it has 10 times more lines of code than a smartphone the criteria is extremely different now you have your safety critical the real-time environments are really difficult for if you think braking or steering redundant you have to build in redundancies and then you have to make the whole thing communicate to each other and being updatable means that part of your software runs in the cloud and, and you get the uh, continuous updates. And the question is, who is going to succeed? Who can do it? No? And your assumption is that we are basically uh, in, in a difficult position. And you're partially right. But I would say today, no real, even a really big company could do a really good car. Yeah? Uh, software-wise and hardware-wise, because it's, it's not so easy to acquire all those capabilities. The problem we are facing today is that this, uh, these uh, competencies are between suppliers, sub-suppliers, not Bosch, Conti, ourselves, and we need a stronger vertical integration yeah, to be competitive. And, and this is uh, one of our American competitors is probably uh, a little bit ahead of us, no? but also uh, this American competitor has to learn uh, still uh, some <laughs> lessons to be uh, trustful and reliable uh, and delivering on all the promises. But we have to, let's say, restructure and rebuild new skills and acquire new skills there to be capable. What makes me confident that we can succeed any other potential competitor has the same problem, no? I would say even a software company to really understand the necessities and the complexity of a car, it's a huge task. 
It yeah. is a huge task. And I haven't seen a software company so far succeeding. Uh, the big supplier companies, they have a chance. You know, I would say the, the big uh, US American or European uh, suppliers, Bosch, Conti, they would have a chance because they own part of the software stack when it comes to braking, steering, but also integration and customer interface is a huge challenge for them. No? Also the backend, cloud backend is a huge challenge for them. So that means that we are in a process, and I would say this process will still take a few years until we have really companies which are capable to do the whole stack, run a fleet of cars continuously, update, upgrade continuously, and deliver on all the customer uh, expectations worldwide. This is a process, and I'm convinced that our setup with strong brands hard shift into software, uh, putting all the resources for software together has a good chance to succeed, has a yeah. very good chance to succeed in that race. Your point about reliability as well, you don't see, you just don't see a lot of Audi owners making YouTube videos about panel gaps on their cars, right? Like there's actually making the cars is difficult. And that is a competency that maybe other companies have to develop. Yeah. I think you can learn everything now. And I think well, this, this American competitor shows that uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that you can you can do stunning things if you're really committed and and uh, and you're willing. So you can do everything. But what what I'm saying is that it's don't expect that you can do this game in one or two or in five years. Now Tesla is a case where it took 15 years and uh, it took a lot of resources. I don't know, 15 or 20 billion to get uh, to profitability. So don't believe that any of the of these startups showing one car on a motor show will succeed. Some of them probably we take them very seriously, but I'm quite sure that no, not all will have the yeah substance and. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's durability. That's I, prob I probably agree with you there. Well, well, let me ask you about software, right? So VW is very good at making cars and, and manufacturing them at scale and making sure they're reliable. You sell a gas car, your cost for that car to maintain it over time as VW is zero. And if the customer has a problem with a traditional gas car, they're on the hook for repairing it or buying new tires or whatever. And that actually can generate some profit for VW and its dealer network over time. With a software car, I buy the car from you. My expectation as a customer is that you are going to continuously provide me new updates to the software, to the user experience, new features, that you're going to run a cloud service that delivers backend features or mapping support or whatever it is. You're going to run a radio network, right? You're going to partner with the cell carrier. Those are all costs now that VW has to carry just for me to drive the car that I already bought. Where is the revenue that supports those costs? Because I don't think people want subscription fees in their, just to operate their cars. Or at least I haven't seen that market develop yet. I think it's it's probably a bit premature to, to say that's not going to happen because the pay-per-use is really taking a lot of space in any other businesses. And also we see that sharing is gaining momentum. This is basically also why we, we bought a car rental company, because we think this car, uh, this 
a business model of sharing usage will increase. No, and it will increase fast. It will not uh, substitute ownership, at least not in the next 10 years or so, but it will grow a lot. And this allows for additional uh, uh, revenue streams. I fully agree, we have to run the car, we have to provide services, but you have to see that this allows us also for additional sources of income. Imagine so far, as a company, we did not have access to a customer. Yeah? The customer access was exclusively with our retail network, basically. No? And they could make a deal or couldn't make a deal on spare parts, uh, tires. And what we experienced that over time, people walk away from our retail outlets, from our um, uh, stores and go then to third parties to, to uh, let's say, uh, um, substitute some of the spare parts or buy new tires. We have a new chance now getting in direct contact with the customer, which is totally new for us. And I have to say, it's kind of a quite violent experience, no? because <laughs> we, we knew that we, we, we had customers, yeah, but we didn't know them. And now we're getting to know them. We're getting to know them. We get to know their preferences, their anger, what they love in the cars. We get a much better customer understanding. But what we also get is, is access to the customer. No, we can talk directly to him. And that allows us probably over time to do better business with the customer, huh? to deliver better service for the customer. Over time allows, for instance, also for us, a very critical uh, figure in our business model is as we are financing quite many of our cars, no, about 60-70%, in some markets in the US it's 90%, uh, residual values. So residuals are for us more important than retail prices. And you can imagine that with updates, upgrades, knowing about the car, the battery status, you can improve your residuals of the car quite considerably. No, knowing what you probably in the second car sale you can, uh, which extras you need and you could provide for some features, you can, you can keep the car fresh. So there is, I, my perception is, my feeling is that there are much more opportunities in that change than risks. There is a risk because you have to acquire new skills, you have to learn to talk to the customer, yeah, which is a big challenge for us. <laughs> uh, a big challenge for us. Uh, you have to learn to deliver good working software updates, it keeps the customer happy, uh, have some surprises for the customer. But I think it's a very, very healthy learning. And um, if we take the opportunities and we see there's a chance, there's more upside than downside. That opportunity in front of the customer, right? That looks like commercial opportunities, right? You're going to sell more things Not in the only. car. Not only. Uh, for instance, I've, I've, sorry to interrupt, but what was for me really, uh, right before Christmas, I had a chance to drive the next generation of the software which we are going to deploy to some of our ID cars, to the lineup. No? And it's a huge improve in uh, the driver assistance functionality. I would say it's, it's really in par, even in Europe, I would say it's better performing than some of our uh, American competitors. <laughs> and this uh, experience, being able to improve the car and the user experience in the hand of the customer. Yeah? This is such a new thing because you know normally we, we would have worked until launch and trying to prepare and probably then a model year update no? and then another three years and then forget the car and think about the next. This idea now of getting the car better in the hands of the customer is really exciting. Yeah? It's not about only additional business opportunities, but it's about additional satisfaction 
get close to the customer, understand the customer better, not get closer to the need of the customer. So this will change our business model. Talk to me about that. That's a big change, right? You have engineers working on the ID4's driver assistance stack. Mm -hmm. You have to pay them. I assume you pay them well. That's a cost. Then they have to deliver it over a network. You have to provision and provide for that wireless network. That will hit the car. That's all just cost. At some point, in order to make that cost worth it over time, and I agree with you, that's a great benefit to the, the customer, but you have to line up revenue against that cost. That is the heart of the business model change, right? Is saying, okay, here's the cost of supporting the cars for longer instead of assuming that there's a two or three year upgrade cycle. And then here's the revenue associated with that platform support. Yeah. Are you realizing any of that revenue yet? Are those plans in place? Yeah, I think you know you, we have that revenue in mind for sure, no, as well because and there will be revenues because customers will be prepared for some features they didn't buy to start probably after a few years or after a few months even they would consider to take another option, another software feature, and the customers would be prepared to pay or even on a monthly fee or or as a, as a one-time expenditure. But I think we underestimate that. The big difference is really that we keep the residual value of the car higher, we keep the car fresher, and we get a better customer experience. You know, when, when Apple started their smartphone business, the income from uh, their services, from the apps, mm -hmm. was very, very low. Yeah? Now it's... It's very high. It's, reason, it's reasonable, yeah, it's reasonable. Yeah. But still, they are making a lot of margin on the hardware, but people are being prepared to pay that margin on the hardware because of the services they get. So I think this logic will also apply to our industry. People will not buy any more cars, which will fade out soon and lose residual value fast and not being a state of the art. So this will be a decisive customer criteria. And at the end, it's about competition. Yeah, it's about competition. And uh, if we can deliver better service, better cars, better customer experience, the customers are prepared to pay for mobility. You know, the, it's, uh, we, we, we see that, that mobility has a value and, and customers are probably even prepared to, to spend more on mobility because they love mobility. They love cars. They love individual mobility. So let me ask you a very reductive question. Do you think the future of Volkswagen is a hardware company, a software company, or a services company? It's combined. We will remain a hardware company because, you know, I think you need excellent manufacturing skills, design, also in the future, designs, quality, finish quality, you need direct customer contact. So we will remain part of that. Software will be decisive for the differentiation and for gaining the economies of scale. So we will become a software company as well, being able to talk to the customer and deliver day by day and uh, day in and out. And we will become a service company because uh, mobility will change. This pay-by-use uh, sharing fleets, shared fleets, mobility services, Autonomous will change that quite considerable, no? that people will not own a car anymore, but only use a car, and we will be, be, be part of that uh, game. So we will become definitely uh, all three of those companies. So we will remain a bit complex, yeah? <laughs> but a lot, more, a lot more vertically integrated. Yeah? We're going to take one more break, but when we get back, we're going to talk about autonomous cars. 
Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. We're back with Volkswagen Group CEO, Herbert Dies. Volkswagen is partnering with Argo AI, which builds software, hardware, maps, and infrastructure to power self-driving vehicles. We actually had Argo AI CEO Brian Selesky on Decoder a few months ago. I wanted to ask Herbert about that partnership and about the future of autonomous cars more broadly. I've talked to a lot of CEOs of companies that make components of autonomous cars. We had the CEO of Luminar on the show, the CEO of Argo AI. You partner with Argo. They make very advanced uh, autonomous systems. There's even, a, I think, an ID Buzz prototype yeah. driving itself around various cities. Yes. That's a, that's a software supplier, right? That's a, they make a package, and then they sell it to you in the way that your traditional suppliers would sell you seats or door handles or something. Do you think that's something you have to vertically integrate, or can you still have suppliers like that? Actually, we treat Argo not as a supplier. We, we own a major stake in, in Argo, so it's, uh, it's, uh, we have a lot of equity in, and we have a very close and trustful relation uh, with the management team there. And we provide also know-how and knowledge, no? integration into the car. We run uh, the fleets. Uh, and at the end, it's not about software. It's about uh, good integration between the right sensor setup uh, then the right computer hardware uh, to make all the perception, the planning, and then take the right decisions to run the car safely. At the end, our aim is to be able to drive a car as Volkswagen. And we have two areas. One is where we are uh, pushing with Argo in this area of robotaxis. Uh, uh, and um, this goes like shuttle services, limited areas, relatively slow speeds, uh, and the typical ODD, which is learned and programmed, and then it goes area by area, city by city. And the other way we are pushing is private mobility, where we have the Audi team and carrier team working because we think that autonomous driving will not only have this area of, of robotaxis, but also private cars will become autonomous over time. Step by step, no? first probably being able to drive level three, level four on open highways, German autobahns, and then getting into more complex areas. Uh, but this will happen at the same time. It's two different technologies. There are some comments, but uh, not too many. So 
some of our approaches are sharing the compute technology, some sensors are shared, but at the end, as the task is so different, no? At, at one stage, you think about a completely autonomous car, which is right from the start able to handle an area. On the other hand, you think about a car which is driving at higher speeds uh, in a less complex area, being able to take over from a driver for a certain period of time. And that leads to different approaches, to different sensor concepts, to different uh, algorithms, and to different AI uh, uh, learning tasks. And that is why we are pushing both. And uh, in both areas, we clearly have the target sooner or later to, to be able to drive the car. Because we think that in, if you think those robo-shuttles, you would have probably three different business layers. No one is platform, so the customer interface, so you have to book the car, you have to pay for the car. So this is a platform level, then someone has to run the fleets, uh, someone has to build the cars, and someone has to do the autonomous driver, which is currently Argo AI. No? And this is why we have a, a stake in Argo AI, because at the end, we also want ownership, at least shared ownership in this area. On the other side, yes, we are for sure. We also have suppliers there. We are working with Bosch, with Mobileye in the other area, but we want to become uh, able to be able to really drive the car because we think the big differentiator is, and the big uh, um, step change in the industry is, are you able to take over the responsibility for driving the car? Yeah. That makes, that makes a big difference. When do you think you'll sell a car without a steering wheel? Sell, difficult to say. First thing will be probably the fleets we are running. No? Uh, first, probably own fleets uh, together with Argo AI. 25, 26, we should get started. No? Still with a steering wheel for getting the car in, in certain occasions back. Uh, but towards 30, we should be able to sell cars without a steering wheel for transport services. No? For the, let's say, for private use, most of those cars probably still would have a steering wheel in case of, let's say, heavy weather conditions, or let's say you go into a very remote area where the car is not able to handle it. Yeah. You've talked a lot about software. One of the highest margin things you can do once you develop the software is sell it or license it to someone else. This is maybe the, the foundational conflict in the traditional computer industry. Microsoft is very successful. That's a software licensing business. Apple is very successful. They will never license anything to anyone. They want to sell an integrated product. Android is very successful. That's a licensing business. Where do you land? Once you've built all this capability, will you license the software to other companies? It's very difficult to predict. Now, currently, we are very open. We are a platform. We are sharing with Ford because we think that the economies of scale we can generate are beneficial for both companies. No? Ford in, in Europe is using our MEB platform and that, um, that applies for hardware and software. So we are very open. And as we think that there won't be too many really self-sufficient software stacks in the world because it will be really expensive to maintain, to make sure that they are up to date worldwide. We are currently considering to share. We would be open to partner partnering as long as we don't get slower. No, but uh, we are we are prepared. So if you say uh, Apple or um, uh, Google uh, or, or uh, you would say 
currently we are running the Google way. We are open to, to third parties to use our technology. Google, you mentioned Google, you mentioned Ford. I had Ford CEO Jim Farley on the show. Ford signed a big deal with Google to do the user interface, to provide mapping services, application support, all that stuff in the car. And what Jim said to me was, look, Ford isn't any good at this. I'm, I'm done throwing money at it when I can just buy it from Google. And we're going to do the stuff we're good at. Are you thinking about similar kinds of deals where you'd, you'd hand over I don't know, navigation to Google Maps or something like that? I can't compare with Ford, no. But uh, we think we are not too bad in it. No, we are. Uh, if, if I compare our routing capabilities, which we have currently in the car based on, on here map data and our, our own routines, in some cases, our routing is, is better and more accurate and leads you faster to the target than Google can do uh, if, it, if it comes to the uh, how, for instance, charging infrastructure data, we absolutely can compete. We believe that it's necessarily to keep control on this domain of uh, user interaction. Because at the end, now it, it makes a difference if the user talks to Google or talks to Audi or Porsche. Yeah? It makes a difference and we can deliver a specific service. And uh, Carriot will help us, not because bundling all the synergies in the group with 10 million cars perspectively uh, every year out there, we have a chance for the right economy of scale, being open also to third parties to deliver. Uh, we will not close also the windows for Google because we are working uh, in, in some car lines uh, with Google support. We have good relationship, but uh, Google knows that we at least we will try and we will try <laughs> very, very hard. We will try very hard to keep independent. Uh, <laughs> I want to make sure we talk about the microbus and EVs. You just mentioned EV charging networks. Uh, so you've announced the new microbus. It seems like it's it's coming soon. Is this, you know, if you think about car design, there's a skateboard. Is the microbus the sort of thing you can just execute now faster? Right, yeah, it's a nostalgic design, definitely. and you can just like make it happen. Or no, is definitely, no, definitely. I would say the electrification gave us the chance to bring back back the microbus because the microbus in its historic uh, time frame was quite unique because it offered a huge amount of space no? on a very reduced platform size. No? It's a relatively small car, but with a huge interior. And you know, as car technology developed over time, the cars have become much more complex. Engine technology, much more complex, much more bulky, much more voluminous. The car lost over time its initial room efficiency. No? Uh, room efficiency means uh, you have loads of room to move, to sit, to work, to rest, to camp on a reduced size of a platform. And only electrification and the MEB brought back this opportunity. Now, now we have in, the, in this new microbus, we have the interior size of a much bigger, a much bigger than the existing, uh, than the existing T7 bus, which we are offering uh, on the platform often even reduced size to the current ICE car. So what we really bring back is that initial room efficiency, not a huge space. You have very low angle, uh, overhangs over the front, very much like the old or the first uh, uh, microbus. You have the typical uh, one box design. And that is why electrification, the MEB brought back this opportunity. And you know, uh, when I joined uh, Volkswagen, 
this was a dream of mine, not to bring back the initial bully, because this is probably the most <laughs> emotional car the world has ever seen. Yeah? In its, it, this car really impacted the world. It came at the right time you know, in these in uh, hippie areas of the 60s. This was really very much used. It's, it's a cultural item. It creates so much positive awareness, even in the United States, but worldwide. Not in China, because they didn't experience <laughs> it, but in the rest of the world. It's so nicely perceived, and it's so much tied into a positive uh, memories of Volkswagen that it's really an asset. So it was really a wish from, from my first day with Volkswagen to bring back to life this car. And only electrification gave us a chance. There were probably six or seven intents to bring back this initial icon, iconic car of, of the first uh, microbuses. But the opportunity came with electrification. And then we did it. We pushed it through and it's now coming and I'm really excited. And I think also America is waiting for this product. Also in Europe, quite many are looking forward. Uh, and I think Tim has done a great job. I think the car will perform very nicely, very modern car, but still awaking all those memories of freedom, of uh, yeah, of the, probably of, of of a very liberal time of the. 60s, so the, 70s. the microbus and the Beetle in that time, they were very uh, accessible cars. They were not expensive. Yeah. How much is the new microbus going to cost? I can't say. Uh, the the uh, American uh, team has to decide on that. It's uh, a bit <laughs> pr premature because the car. Uh, only come, I think, next year to America. So um, uh, it's not yet decided uh, as the car will have newest features, a lot of range. It will not be as cheap as the, as the first microbus. Okay. And then one of my <laughs> pet peeves across the entire car industry, everyone is doing this. It's the announcement of an EV that is not going to arrive for a year or more. Why do you think this? I mean, you're doing it with a microbus, right? It's it, You're announcing it in March. No, but it's, it's obviously teased, but it's arriving in 2023. That's a in year away in America. Yeah, in America. But in, you know, we announced it because it's hitting the ground here in Europe. That is, and I tell you the background a little bit. When I, I pushed very hard for this project, and I have to say, I really <laughs> fought for this project. And this was very important for me. And there was quite a lot of skepticism around. And, and we took the decision in 2015. No. And um, there was a lot of skepticism of whether EVs would work at all, no? and whether this would be a good investment or a bad investment. And I have to say, and you have to imagine, this was still Trump administration, our American colleagues have been very conservative on their volume perspectives no? by, the, by the time. And that led to a situation that we took the decision to bring the car to America very late. And that required some modifications for the local American specs. And so this is why the car is coming too late to America. I feel sorry about that and I apologize for it. So when is it coming <laughs> out? I think the car is really important for America. <laughs> I can tell that you love this car. When is it coming out in, in Europe? Uh, in Europe, it's uh, already um, we have market introduction uh, in the first uh, quarter and then it should come mid-year to the customers. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about charging and by the way that I want this car. So, uh, you know, the faster you can go, the better. Uh, but you talked about charging infrastructure. We just had uh, United States Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg on the show. He wants to expand infrastructure. He wants to subsidize chargers in place where it's not profitable necessarily now. You run Electrify America, right? That's a Volkswagen project. It came out of the Dieselgate settlement with California. 
do you want to run Electrify America? Like, I think of having to do that because of a settlement related to a scandal. There's a part of me that says you're doing it begrudgingly. There's another part of me that says, oh, this is a huge opportunity to own the, the major charging network in America if you can get over that genesis. Yeah, I have to say, uh, from all the penalties we received in America, I most liked from the beginning this idea of a charging network. Now, because I always found that the idea of paving the way for our electric cars or even making electric cars viable in America would be, at the end, an asset for us. No, uh, So I, 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 I really liked it. But still, this was big investment. It's not going to pay off too soon. But over time, we are noticing that charging will be a business model. Now, there's a lot of investment going into charging now. All the petrol companies, the biggest uh, charging network company currently is Shell. No? So that means there's a lot of business potential in charging. We see that our also our incomes are really gradually improving because the uh, usage is, is getting higher and with every electric car we're selling, it's, it's getting better. And we're not doing it only in America. We have been founding uh, charging networks in uh, joint ventures in Italy, in Spain. We are invested in Ionity, which is a fast charging network uh, across Europe. We have invested in a fast charging network in China because we think it's going to be, uh, it's necessary for electrification. Yeah, we need to invest. Uh, by the way, our American competitor is, <laughs> is showing that. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's, it's showing that, uh, that uh, it can be done. And also what we see is that there is a huge opportunity in charging. I just uh, a few days before Christmas, I had the opportunity to open a charging hub for Audi, which is kind of premium charging in a location close to Nuremberg. And this will be a wonderful experience. Now you have fast charging, you, you get there with, with uh, your Audi app, you get there, you, you plug in your car, and then you have kind of a, of a lounge atmosphere where you can wash your hands, you can have a drink, uh, you, you can do your emails, you have VLAN. This will be part of the mobility experience will be charging. And, and there will be premium experience over, let's say, just covering the areas. That is why we think charging will play a major role. We think also this uh, all... What, what today is with the, uh, with the petrol companies, no? supplying the energy, dealing with energy, we get much more complex because the prices for uh, electric energy are fluctuating. No? You mm -hmm. can buy at high places, you have, to, you have to be able to buffer, and cars will provide a huge opportunity to be able to contribute to net stability. Not to the electric net stability because you basically you can load the car when there's a surplus. We will experience times where you get your, your, your refueling for free because there's just so much uh, energy surplus because of so much renewables in the network. So this is a new business model and we want to participate. We want to participate. And uh, yes, uh, in America it was not entirely voluntary at the beginning. But at the end, I think it, it was the baseline for one of our really also strategic approaches into EV business. How do you think about the pace of investment in building the charging network there, right? You've described perhaps premium charging experiences. You've described partnering with power companies, maybe changing how you meter or pay for that. But you still need lots of chargers and lots of places to make all this work. I'm looking at the numbers here. Uh, you expect to have 1,800 fast charging stations and 10,000 chargers 
in America by the end of 2025, there are already 10,000 Tesla superchargers. Like, yeah, but is that know, fast are, enough? Yeah, in some countries, we are already ahead of, of Tesla. Mm -hmm. I think that's fast enough because it has to go along with the, with the growth of the fleet, no? Mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right. We can't do all the investment out of our cash flows, no? We are partnering. And uh, we are also looking for, in some areas, for instance, batteries. Now, batteries are a much bigger concern for me because the investment there is still bigger than in, uh, in, in charging. Uh, there we will uh, even uh, consider IPOs or, or allowing third parties to participate in the growth because there will be a lot of growth in that area of EVs, charging networks, batteries. And I'm sure that we will find uh, investors to participate. But we can't uh, finance all of the necessary investment out of our cash flows. One of the ways to reduce that investment is to standardize, either standardize batteries across the industry, which doesn't appear to be happening, standardizing the plugs and the charging infrastructure, slow going, there is some interest, maybe not as much interest. Every now and again, I will say Elon Musk talks about opening superchargers. We have the CEO of Polestar. He says, yeah, they talk about it, but it's never going to happen. <laughs> do you do you think do you think we're gonna see a, a, a actual push from the industry to standardize charging, especially fast charging? I think besides this proprietary network, which is quite established already worldwide, not in Europe, US uh, mostly, uh, the rest is really uh, industry-wide usable. There's still, let's say, when it comes to, to billing or charging, there are different standards, different price tags, but here in Europe, you can use every pole, uh, which is not uh, Tesla. And, and I'm, I, I really, I'm, I think it's a positive move from uh, Tesla to, to consider opening up the network. But uh, that always has, uh, uh, Tesla has to decide on that. No, Tesla has to decide on that. We see, uh, my perception is that the charging network actually is growing very, very fast, at least in Europe. I drove electric cars basically the whole year through in 21. I've done about 15,000 kilometers. I was uh, to Italy yesterday. I came back from, uh, from Austria. It was only once that I had to wait on a charging pole. Yeah? So that means that uh, I think it's, uh, it's a lot discussed. Uh, but also in the, in the US, you can go from West Coast to East Coast without stopping. So I think we, we overstate the issue. And, and it's growing really fast. And there's so much investment going in. And it's not only auto. No, everyone is investing in charging networks. The, the utilities companies, the petrol companies, no? they, they also are changing swiftly. Currently, we, for instance, we, we agreed with uh, uh, BP, they are running the biggest refueling network in uh, Germany. Uh, we will convert all the fuel stations into charging uh, within a two years time period. So it's a lot of investment going in. And I think it's, 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 it will be in line with the growth of EVs. The, the bigger constraint might be batteries. You actually just shifted battery suppliers, right? You went from... LG Chem to CATL in China, is that? No, we didn't shift. We didn't shift. We 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 have to use all of them because you know it's a growth we need. It's just so much that no sole company would have been able to do all the investment. And just recently, we decided to build our own uh, battery group. Uh, Thomas Schmal is leading that. A colleague of mine, and we we are looking also for for uh, later at some external companies. The first plants we will. 
uh, finance ourselves, but we will invest in batteries because you know it's so much growth necessary, and we couldn't find enough suppliers to do the job. This is a kind of consistent theme of our conversation is yeah. needing to vertically integrate, right? <laughs> Everywhere we talk about your answer is we got to do it ourselves. Is there, I would just say Finally, for a moment. Not 100%, no, but um, whenever it's necessary, the new business model requires to, you know, you can't run electric cars without networks and without batteries. Yeah? I mean, we see all this demand. Is there a reason that the industry has not created suppliers to meet that demand and all the companies are kind of doing it themselves right now? A good question. Good question. And I, I have to tell you a story there because, you know, I, I used to work for uh, another company uh, in 2013 still or 12 when I first visited a, a small company in China, which was called CATL. And they would have a turnover of, I think, 200 million or so or 300. And I would do... Uh, pouch sales for smartphones for an American customer, you know, for a big American customer. And I visited them and said, I need battery cells for cars, first for plug-in hybrids and then for electric cars. And the guys looked at me and, and said, we can't do cars. It's too big, uh, we don't have the facilities. <laughs> and they were really not prepared, but I could convince them. Yeah? And CATL is now, uh, and Robin, Robin Cheng uh, is, uh, let's say, the CEO and founder. Uh, um, and and I, uh, once in a while I follow up with him, and he made an exceptional uh, transition. Now, he's now, I think, the second biggest uh, battery manufacturer. Market capitalization is about uh, 200 uh, billion. Uh, something like that, extremely fast growth and is extremely innovative now, CATL. And I tried the same uh, with the German uh, um, first-tier suppliers. They would have been well prepared, no? Bosch, Conti, uh, you name them. I tried the same thing because I, I knew that we would need a huge amount of battery cells. And this, you know, uh, the turnover of only of our of our battery cell business perspective to 2030, when we will build 50% EVs, not 2030, will have a turnover only for the internal demand of 20 billion, which is half the size of Bosch, yeah, or or, or, or of one of our big first years. So it's a huge business involved. But I have to say, I could not convince any of our first years, besides CATL, to invest in batteries. Yeah? which I regret. Uh, now we have to do it ourselves. Uh, we have invested in Northwald, which is kind of a European startup. We are working with the entire industry, LG, Samsung, CATL, uh, because we need, we need the quantity of batteries and the quality of batteries. So this all tracks with, you've said VW will stop selling gas cars in Europe by 2035. I'm assuming that data is driven by when do you think you'll have enough batteries, when will Will there be charging infrastructure? Not necessarily. I think, you know, this transition into EVs has certain constraints. Now, I think the, the plan now 50% by 2030 is extremely ambitious. Now, imagine that means only for, we, have, we own here in, in Europe about 20% market share. Uh, and for those then, um, for those 20% market share maintaining that 50% uh, EVs, we need six gigafactories. Yeah? 
which has to be, they have to be up and running by 27, 28 to be able to deliver on our 28. It's close to impossible <laughs> to do that. It's really, and I have high respect for our team who is really facing the challenge because you have to buy all the machine tools. You have to build the plants. No, you have to find the locations. You have to train the people. You have to make sure that uh, the supply of the raw materials is safeguarded and, and secured. This is huge, though the transition will depend uh, for sure on the scaling of, and we are only 20%, so, so six, six plants. So Europe needs 30 of those plants. Each plant two kilometers times one kilometer size. Yeah, this is huge. And the huge uh, quantities of, of, of raw materials have to be moved and digged out of the, so this will be challenging. And then to, let's say, um, get from 50% to 100%, no, it still will be a, a tremendous challenge. No, so it's not just say, let's switch off uh, uh, ICE cars, it's just impossible. The second thing is that it, uh, electric cars only make sense if the energy is renewable, no, if only if the energy is really green energy, it comes from wind or solar or nuclear. Uh, but as long as we have nations based on producing electric energy on coal, it doesn't make sense to sell electric vehicles there. Now think about Poland, I think it's 100% coal currently. So uh, before we sell electric cars, we have to convert the primary energy sector into renewables, into 100% renewables. It's already fine in France, in Norway, uh, in Austria, in Europe, no? in some parts of America, in some parts of Canada, but uh, this has to go hand in hand with the conversion of primary energy production, and this requires time. And this is why uh, two ambitious plans will not work. They will be even counterproductive because, you know, running EVs on coal-fired uh, car plants is even worse than running running gasoline cars. So I would say America has a very complicated power story. You have not announced the date for the discontinuation of gas cars in North America. When do you think that will be? It's hard to say. You know, some of our um, peers are, let's say, making statements, and I'm not sure whether they should do that because, you know, at the end, this is a decision a car manufacturer cannot take because it has to do, do I have the primary energy? Do I have the networks? Are the people prepared to switch to electric cars? Do they have the right incentives? No? If you look in, in Europe, no, diesel now is at, uh, or has been for a few months now, at uh, 90 cents uh, or one euro. It's very difficult to compete with an EV car against such kind of prices. So this has to go hand in hand. And the the run out of EVs will depend on the legislation and on the build-up of renewables. And this will dependent on state policies and on, on a comprehensive policy and not individual decisions of, of car manufacturers. Yeah? Uh, think about uh, we are uh, second or third position in the uh, Latin American markets in Brazil and in Argentina. Uh, they run their cars on uh, many of them of, on base of ethanol, no? which is basically CO2 free, not entirely CO2 free. It's uh, um, bioethanol. And for them, it just doesn't make sense to switch so far to electric cars. No? They would still would need combustion engine technology. And that is why I have to say, as an international company, it, you know, if, if, if there's a lot of bus now in India becoming electric, but 
90% of the energy production is on coal. So we have to change. And I'm, I'm just, we have been also a nice, nice story. We are changing. We have still an, a coal-fired power plant here in Wolfsburg, no, in our headquarters, which we decided already some three years ago to dismantle and substitute it with a gas engine, which, is, which uh, allows for CO2 savings of uh, comparable to 870,000 cars per year. So it's huge. No? CO2 savings is huge. And I received probably, I don't know, a call every week from countries like India, uh, and they wanted to buy this power plant, this coal-fired power plant, <laughs> no? and just to build it up somewhere else. We could avoid it at the end. It was not, uh, not easy. But now think about it. It doesn't make sense to electrify the mobility world if we don't first uh, make the, the, the primary sector CO2 neutral. The world is, is, is not the same. It's a, you know, in France, they have zero uh, gram CO2 per kilowatt hour because it's all nuclear. No, it's, it's all seven grams. In Poland, they have a thousand grams because it's all uh, coal-based. No, it's the same would be in South Africa or so. So it has to be staggered. It has to be primary energy cars, networks, primary energy cars. One thing that's facing the entire car industry up and down is the chip shortage. We've seen various ways of dealing with it. Some automakers are holding the cars back. Some like BMW are shipping cars without features and offering like $500 credits because the cars don't have touchscreens. Uh, my father-in-law just bought a pickup truck and the heated seats don't work and he has to go back when the chip is available so they can install it. Like there's a, a variety of solutions to the chip shortage. How is VW dealing with it and when do you see it ending? Hmm. Yeah, good question. And, uh, you know, it's always time between the years, as we call it, no? between year end and, and start mm -hmm. of the year to, to uh, rethink and reconsider. And I would have been with the achievements of um, 2021 really, really happy. I think we made a lot of progress. The teams performed uh, extremely well. We gained market share in some areas. Uh, and also my outlook for 2022 was very, very positive besides chips supply. Yeah. And um, we really, we suffered a lot. We lost market share in China because of chip supply in Latin America, because we prioritized the uh, higher spec cars no? and, and the premium brands. Uh, though that was quite of a difficult situation. And I have to say, and I have to, we have to see that this is a structural problem, which will continue. So we will still have constraints. We will better manage than last year. Uh, we had quite a good start the first two weeks, but there are constraints visible which are structural because the chip demand is just growing so fast and uh, we are very depending on uh, second, third tier supply on the chip manufacturers. We are trying to do our best to sort, to help, to improve, um, to get higher margins for the chip industry, you know, because at the end it, it makes a lot of difference whether the same chip ends in a a uh, refrigerator or in a car, because in a car it gets much higher contribution. <laughs> uh, so we, we're trying to really push and squeeze. We have a task force running. Uh, I'm optimistic that we can do better than last year. Will we be able to deliver all the cars we wanted? No, because our, we have really, really strong demand. And uh, we will have some constraints still, which is my biggest yeah. I wouldn't call it headache, but I, I have a lot of focus on this on this area, I have to admit. When do you think it's going to even out or ease up? I think it will, we will um, 
continuously improve over time because you know capacities will shift into higher margins, which are cars. Uh, but it's a structural pro uh, problem and it, there's a lot of investment uh, getting into chip manufacturing, but it's a three years investment period no? until we see that. So through 22, quite sure we will see constraints. Hopefully 23, we will get back to satisfy demand. And then hopefully we have a new setup, which because we are now digging much deeper into uh, chip, chip design, chip supply. We are uh, influencing much more. We are getting into direct sourcing. Uh, we have uh, dialogue across our first years into directly in chip production. So we're doing a lot. We will improve, but yeah. So let me bring this all the way back around, and then I promise I'll ask you an easy one like you got. <laughs> you started by saying, here's how the company is structured, here's where the growth is. And you said, we're not very strong in America right now, but we yeah. want to get stronger. We think we have the product portfolio, and we'll go from 4% to 8 to 10% market share. Mm. Will that growth come in EVs, or yeah. will it be a mixture? It will mostly come from EVs. No? We're trying to push the market share with, uh, with EVs. I think we have a good chance you know, with products like the Microbus, like the IG models, which are well perceived, which are selling very nicely. Uh, there's a few more, I would say, models to come which would suit the Americas. We are considering some more Audi models for America. It's and those will all be all EVs. Decided. Yeah, it's not yet all decided, but I think this electrification allows us for a redefinition of our market position, of our brand perception, and uh, I'm 100% sure that it gives us a new chance for getting back to where we should be, uh, a volume manufacturer in the United States with a proud manufacturing footprint in, in Chattanooga and becoming much more of an American company as well once again. Now we are two Chinese and two European for the moment. Okay, here's the easy one. What is your daily driver? Because if I had your job, I would only drive Lamborghinis. <laughs> <laughs> That's the least what I'm driving. <laughs> I once in a while drive stuff and Uros and people would already look at me. <laughs> now, actually, you know, I, I drove uh, this year through, I mostly drove electric cars, mostly an ID3, which I, um, I have two, one, one here in Wolfsburg, one in Munich, uh, because also to share the customer experience, not to get, you know, how is the car working, our networks are working. And actually, I drive, uh, I like to drive electric cars one or the other Audi models, and I have really the privilege that I can swap cars, so it's really good. And now I'm getting, I have to say, I have kind of a, yeah, uh, fallback, yeah. Uh, I will get a Golf R as the next car for the next half year or so, which I'm also <laughs> looking forward. <laughs> Very good. Uh, well, <laughs> if it was me, it would just be Lamborghinis. Uh, <laughs> Herbert, it was great to have you on Decoder. Thank you so much for making the time. Yeah. Thank you, Lily. Thanks again to Herbert Deese for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like it, give us that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.